Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadbourne. With me, as always, is Thomas Brooks. Hello, hello. So, um, how's it going, Thomas? <laughs> it's going. I think this is uh, this is sounding like a stream of consciousness episode. It it definitely is, and uh, it's it's a very apt one. So I was thinking to myself today, like, man, it's been it's been a rough couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Had a faculty member tell me that like they felt that the semester should have ended like a month and a half ago. Yep. <laughs> and so, so we're gonna talk about burnout. Burnout. And uh, I'm gonna expand that with my article with uh, repeated rejection, imposter syndrome, and burnout. Common Ooh. academic experiences. Yeah, that is a highly salient title of an article. Um, I will be looking a little bit further down the road than where we're at right now. So I think that one's kind of encompasses our present, but I was thinking maybe looking at the future with recrafting careers for mid-career faculty, a qualitative study from 2017 um to see does it get better um because i constantly find myself talking to my undergrad students about like getting them like in the space because a lot of them are going to grad school or want to and i'm like yeah. it's not like coming out of the closet guys it doesn't get better um yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i've got i've got some kind of hits and and misses with this article and i i want to be supportive of it because like the core of it is really good and part of the article also suggests that we maybe are mindful of our criticisms <laughs> mm-hmm. to avoid some of those aspects of of rejection but it's um it, it's kind of tapping into our theme this season with with qualitative research uh, in this case this is an autoethnography mm-hmm. uh which wait, one two three four five six seven 10 researchers so there's 10 authors on this paper now we'll link the information for these both of these papers um, but the authors on this paper kind of talk about their own experiences mm-hmm. and i assigned this to my students this semester and one of them kind of pointed out and i was rereading this i reread it after i talked to the student about it and we had talked about it in class that it was sort of a yeah, that there's a little more focus on like the individual things that you can do to help deal with these problems. Now, to their credit, they do talk about the systematic and structural things that can be done, but some of those things, they're nebulous. <laughs> yeah, no, I find, so I do a lot of writing in like trauma-informed care and like trauma-informed interventions and stuff like that. Like I've spent probably an depressing amount of time looking at that research and a lot of times this is kind of like a genre thing where it's like you get this small section about institutional stuff but then the actual work that the researchers did had absolutely nothing to do with the institutional factors or they like either put all of the responsibility of implementing an intervention on the teachers or all of the stuff is like super like individualized within the students and like it's gotten to the point where I did a peer review once for an article that I ultimately decided to be reviewer two on because it was like a systematic perspective on adverse childhood experiences 
And I was like, cool, this is awesome. Like, let's jump in. And it was this, like, they started really strong. And then all of their recommendations, all of like the so what of the paper was still super individualized. And I was like, okay, you lost me. Like, you tried, but this isn't good enough. Like, if you're going to commit, like, commit. <laughs> What's your hot take on why? Because I, I have some, I've got a hypothesis on why that happens. Why uh, they tend to shift to the individualistic versus the structural and systematic. Capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that wasn't my hot take, but uh, that no, is a hotter take. My my hot take is that particularly for psychologists, um, we are in an individual subject field, right? So like even our social psych, while we do like take into account like group dynamics and like larger structures mm -hmm. and system norms and stuff like that, the subject is still the individual and it looks at the relationship between that system and that individual and how it changes that individual's behavior. And so I don't think there is the training to actually like shift the magnifying glass upward, um, at least within our field, right? Yeah. Um, I think sociology is a little bit more equipped uh, to deal with that. Um, but even in like education, I think it's like super student teacher oriented stuff. And so they don't spend a lot of time. Like there's this assumption that the way things are is stable or natural or, and I think that might be a bias. I don't know if we've covered that bias yet. I don't like, know. Yeah. I'm like they assume it. that the climate or the group norms or something like that is stable and isn't going to change. And so they treat external validity like it's internal validity. And so they just look at the subjects within that system because that's more tangible and more relatable. And so, but there's like this ethos of wanting to shift to the systematic, but there's no like literacy to sh move us that direction, right? So it's kind of like, I think people get stuck where they are well-intentioned and want to talk about it, but they don't have the language or the frame in order to make sense of it yeah. without it becoming either too nebulous and not applicable anymore, or that it like bumps up against some biases. I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's just a very uh, subject-centric methodology or like perspective of uh, problems. I, I was kind of asked a similar question when we went over my article in class and my response was a little different. I, I think I made the argument that we have these kind of social systems. And if you're a, and an individual within these kind of broad power systems, administration, you're going, you're butting heads with them because you need to change something on an administrative level or mm -hmm. academia as a whole is a really big thing. It, and it is kind of a quasi-nebulous thing mm -hmm. because it's not just one university. It's all universities are dealing with this problem. Mm -hmm. All academics are dealing with rejection and burnout and imposter syndrome. Um, and this article touches on that. It basically says like, you know, they, they gave a, a talk that I think it was like SP, yeah, SPSP. Um, they, and it was sort of like, uh, 
airing of grievances like people were very emotional afterwards and people were sharing their stories and there was this like very different air than like a normal like hey we're talking about our research they're like no we're gonna sit here for an hour and we're gonna share our stories with this and that realization that they were not alone and no one in that room was alone mm-hmm. that everyone has kind of dealt with this sort of like open their eyes I, I think the beginning the beginning is a little like here's this thing that happened and people were hugging and like it was a really emotional event i was like okay that's nice <laughs> but it still kind of gets to this issue of like, all right, like you're at SPSP. SPSP is arguably part of that problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> how do you fight against that? And how do you you deal with that on a structural level as an individual, even mm-hmm. like as a group of people talking about mm-hmm. this problem? And I, I think it's it's daunting. Mm-hmm. And it's it's easier to say, all right, this is how I cope with it. And I could pass that knowledge on to you because the systematic stuff is too complex. Mm-hmm. Or... I don't have enough power and I don't think I ever will have enough power. Right. And I think that, I mean, if we want to get super radical, like if you read, uh, was it Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism, Mm -hmm. which is very uh, academia centric. So he talks about his shifts, like uh, social, political, philosophical, like shifts across time as he was a professor and how that's changed his classroom dynamics. So it's super tangible. Um, but he talks about how we see this shift from the 20th century where like we as workers are in the same room together for a set amount of time, all visibly and physically sharing in our like suffering, right? And so like we get to see each other, we get to talk to each other daily we share a lunch break. And so there's like this community that gets built because I can see you having a hard time and it's the same hard time that I'm having. And that's what prompts a lot of like labor movements, right? Because it's, we watch what we go through in other people and there's like that realization recognition. Um, Now we're in a like, control society so we're not sharing the same spaces anymore with the same time frames like you and I teach at completely different times right I don't see what goes on in your classroom I hear stories afterwards um I sit in an office alone my email follows me around and so I experience notifications and emails as an individual even though I see it's global mm-hmm. but like I sit there and go oh I don't know how to feel about that because I can't read the room because the room doesn't exist, right? And so that may also be a part of that systematic thing is that there is no pointing at uh, like, oh, this is the problem, right? Um, right. It's not like we're living under monarchy where like oh, one head has to roll yeah. and then we can start fresh. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's interesting. I, I remember... Um... In our last couple of, of faculty summit meetings, one of the things that we were talking about is that apparently way back in the day, there was nothing scheduled for faculty from like three to five on Wednesdays. Oh. And it's sort of historically why faculty senate meetings are three to five on Wednesdays is because general faculty and faculty senate could happen there and everyone could attend because no one had a class. Well, that's mm-hmm. changed. And I'm not sure at what point it changed or at what point we've kind of accepted it, but it's changed. 
Right. And now some departments are like, no, we're going to have classes during that time. Or that's a, that's a time that we can have it. Or that's a prime time. Or we just, we have to fill so many schedule slots. And so mm-hmm. we need to be flexible mm-hmm. for the students, but we've lost that flexibility because of that. Mm-hmm. We've lost our ability to, to engage more. That's why a lot of faculty meetings happen on Fridays now, because that's the one day where, you know, Monday, Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday schedule and so fridays tend to be more open um it's it's really fascinating like how some of those like structural in this case structural administrative shifts have changed how we interact yeah right yeah no and that's kind of like nothing in psychology is going to prepare you to do an analysis of time (laughs) we can sit there and ask individual faculty member about their experiences um, and look at them as individuals going through the system, but we don't have the tools necessarily to look at time. Um, so I think that's also kind of, I, I think it's a literacy problem. I also think it's like, we're shifted into a different space where like, we don't see the infrastructure behind the structure, if that makes sense. Like we can't look at the nuts and bolts of the system as easily. Um, and those people who can, I think, are kind of viewed as like nutcases at, at our university because there are there are a couple, like especially some of our, our, our big players in the association, like in our union, that is what they spend a lot of their time doing. And so they mm-hmm. are aware of those nuts and bolts. And it's sometimes you have to kind of step back because like for like their perspective mm-hmm. <laughs> is very alien from some of the uh, professors at our university because they're like, like, why can't we just get along with the administration? They're like pulling their hair out. Like we, we try, right, like we, we, we can't do this. And it's like, well, there's, there might be some middle ground there, but it's that difference between like, are you looking behind the curtain versus are you just trying to make it through day? Right. Yeah. Have you like actually gone behind the sheetrock to find the asbestos? Like, right. <laughs> right. So I think that's, I think we are ill-prepared and under-literate in order to deal with uh, those problems. And so oftentimes the easiest solution is to, particularly for publishing, especially if you have like, you know, a snot-nosed reviewer too, like yep. myself, yep. who's like, yeah, but what about the system? And like you write like a couple throwaway sentences into a paragraph about the system, even though you have no expertise or haven't, you know, engaged in that literature. And so it's in there, it's a throwaway, it's, you know, it's very performative because it's trendy to talk about the system, but like nobody has the like mechanical knowledge of the system to talk about it legibly. (laughs) And so it ends up being like this weird, like I'm putting this in the paper so we all feel good about what I'm writing about, but this isn't what the paper is about. So um, I guess let's, let's jump in and let's talk about the early career stuff and then we'll talk yes. about. So this is, this is um, Jermka, uh, J-A-R-E-M-K-A, Ackerman, Jarowski, Rule, Sweeney, Trop, Metz, Molina, Ryan, and Vic. 2020 um common academic experiences no one talks about repeated rejection imposter syndrome and burnout and it's kind of weird for me like being on academic twitter and stuff like that this is all they talk about (laughs) right so 
but this this kind of comes out to stuff that they realize that the more and more they've talked about this at conferences, the more they've talked about it amongst themselves, there seems to be this 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 driving understanding that everyone experiences these things. They're far more common than I think we give credit for. It's just we don't talk about them amongst each other mm-hmm. as often. We might read about them, we might hear this kind of like one-off nebulous story, but we don't uh, necessarily. Uh, Um, that we for we, we don't necessarily uh, delve into it mm-hmm. as deeply. Um, so they kind of set up a autoethnography, kind of a kind of self interview storytelling um, um, study uh, where they kind of talk about their problems, um, and they kind of split it up amongst them. Where some of them talk a little bit about how they deal, how they've dealt with rejection. Some of them talk about how they deal with imposter syndrome. And, and it is very much from like a personal narrative. I mean, this is talking about their experiences with it. And so it is almost tied into that, that, um, that aspect of it being individual, uh, which I think is kind of where I, I, I really find this article lacking. I think talking about those experiences is good. And part of their argument is that we have to normalize this stuff. And yeah, we should. We should normalize at least talking about it. Um, but it doesn't necessarily solve it. Um, and they do offer some recommendations. And I want to I want to kind of go through this list and talk a little bit about some of their recommendations at an individual level. And but just to be clear, these are all psychologists writing, right? Yes, yeah, these okay. are these are uh, the, let's see, Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences. In uh, oh. yeah, University of Delaware, University of Michigan, Texas at Austin, University of Toronto, California Riverside, um, Massachusetts Amherst, University of Kansas, Mullenberg College, uh, two, two professors from from Mullenberg College. Uh, college. Okay, so we're yeah. so these are the recommendations from scholars at R one institutions. Yes. With very likely low teaching loads, um, high grant productivity, yeah. and they got talks at SPSP, so they are names because that's hard to get. So, okay, I, I'm reading the room. What do these people have to tell me about how stressed I am? Uh, the, <laughs> I, I will say the Mullenberg College uh, is is a is a dual one: Department of Psychology and Provost's Office. Oh, that's weird. I mean, it could be a small college. It could be a, but still, that's weird. But like, what? <laughs> How does that happen? I don't know. Who are these I'm, people? <laughs> I am already skeptical. No, yeah, uh, let's let's get it. What does uh, <laughs> University of Michigan suggest to me? <laughs> so they do offer. Uh, let's see, like one, two, six, five, and four recommend individual recommendations for the three people who talk about. Uh, rejection and then for systematic stuff it is six total (laughs) okay so it's like one four and one (laughs) as opposed to like six four and one or six four and five um so like there's some things that i think are important i think like these are very self-helpy i'm Um, sure they're fine i'm sure they're fine (laughs) do do not dwell on rejection take time before moving to the next step which i i, I kind of like that like 
breathe, take a day off, then resubmit. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Um, don't be afraid to seek help from a counselor or therapist. Like, okay, we need cool. therapy after um do nothing allow yourself time to feel psychological distance from rejections and recognize the impact of each rejection uh that the impact of each rejection will diminish with further experience eventually you just get numb to it yeah yeah um except that rejection is part of the process of being an academic uh uh, yeah Accept the, yeah, accept the possibility that rejection hurts because it is about an evaluation of your ideas. <laughs> um, let a little time pass. Seek support from others, from friends, colleagues. Um, take charge of what you can. Like, find places to take control of your response to the rejection. Like, that's cool. Um, I actually think we should respond more, but like a lot of us don't want to, I mean, we have limited time anyway, so yeah. I don't have time to do a full write-up to every editor that rejects me. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, it's not fun. I definitely admit that being, being rejected is not fun. Um, no, so, I think, you know, those suggestions, like, yes, obviously, like obviously. those are great. Yeah. I think, uh, uh phd advisors i think we were very lucky with ours in the realm of dealing with rejection because we rejected a lot of our stuff micro dose rejection from him for five straight years (laughs) but it was good like we could push back and we could kind of fight for ideas and if we could do it it would be accepted um and he was always open to being proven wrong so like then we can make a judgment call on like time and energy. So I'm like, you know, like he doesn't think we can get that sample. Now, I think we can. And then I realize, oh shoot, he was that's right. gonna take me like two months of like laborious effort to get that sample. <laughs> so so here- like rejection is tough. I will yes. Yes. So they 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 talk about the more systematic side from both rejection with articles, but also like rejection in the hiring process and things like that. Like it's tough. Mm-hmm. Um, the publication system is tough. Hiring is tough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, so these are some of their recommendations for dealing with rejection, like on a systematic, like cultural and structural recommendations. And they're only uh, six, so I can I can I can go over all of them real quick. Brace for impact. Be compassionate when reviewing other others' work, pairing criticisms with clear acknowledgments of the strengths of the manuscript. Absolutely. That's not a system. Right. It is a personal thing. That's not a system solving uh, problem. Okay. Yeah. 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 But, which I think I think this um uh, Ackerman's response that uh, every journal editor should follow a rule of editing and blocking needlessly negative. Uh, and ad hominem attacks from reviewers before releasing them. That would be a little more systematic and that would help solve that first problem, that first yeah, recommendation. That would, okay, yeah, no, we're moving up. So okay. I'm with that. I, I, I jumped down the list for that one. <laughs> but, <laughs> okay, so we have one almost system and one not system at all under our yeah. system suggestions, cool. Um, I actually like like some of uh, Ackerman's points. Like people in positions of power should be aware of the dynamics of providing feedback and the ways in which critical comments can be framed as collaborative rather than rejecting. 
that still feels personal but okay yeah yeah i mean like um, i i'm you know the personal suggestions are good but don't call them systematic if they're not right well it's cultural and structural recommendations i guess yeah. um People in positions of power can build new norms into their training, such as dissociating one's identity from one's hypothesis. What? Uh, I I think it has to do with the idea of like you can you cannot agree with the concept, like the the hypothesis, but still not be a jerk towards the person. Okay. I think I think that maybe deals with some of like the biases that we have towards particular perspectives. It's still a very personal thing. Right. Um, people in positions of power can train mentees to become better rejectors themselves, like paying attention to tone and content when completing manuscript reviews. I mean, like we could argue that this is kind of systematic, that basically training of appropriate behavior needs to happen at like the top down. But that also re relies on the good King George problem. Right. Yeah, like you can have a good, a benevolent ruler, but as soon as the head rolls, you could get the Mad King next. Right, but it also gets me down, like if we're talking about things like tone and content with manuscript reviews and, and, and offering feedback with that, like that's like basic human, being a basically good human being. <laughs> Yeah, that's being kind, <laughs> but that doesn't solve our rejection problem. Right. Like we might still have rejection if it's if there are some critical issues wrong and you could report on that positive like you could be nice in rejecting someone and saying like look, I don't think this article should go through. I've had to do that before. Mm -hmm. I've read an article it was just structurally I don't know, I don't say basic, but it was it was just it was so minimal. They were using partial data from like archival sources instead of using the broad spectrum of actual archival data that they had they were kind of cherry picking their data and it was like this is super limited like how can we really approve this if you're not looking at the like the whole the picture, picture. Yeah. i mean i've only out of all of the articles i reviewed and this may not get me any more review requests but i've only recommended like publication for one generally i'm reject 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 i think i've maybe you see the as soon as you go on the back end of peer review you see what a hot mess it is oh yeah yeah i mean i've had to step in as a uh i got i got to step in as a uh, guest editor because uh. like people dropped out <laughs> like it's... and they just they needed someone to review it and they were like could you help coordinate this like our editor left it's like um okay i don't think i'm the best person for it but yeah but, but like there is if you want to do good work yeah. you gotta do good work but right also you got to be kind when you're reviewing bad work but then yeah rejection's a problem for burnout but now we're not addressing rejection we want to tone police rejection letters to make people feel i don't understand yeah. Here, here's another change the focus to quality over quantity in hiring decisions and or tenure and promotion decisions this may erase the individual motivation to submit so many products at one time Okay. That one is probably the closest we've got to a system because you could 
there's a direct policy well but to that but no but i think like the way i read this is it's still personal because okay if it's i mean i guess like if we're dealing with like hiring decisions but like you don't get to choose how many people apply for your job right but we do we do only pick like on the other end of that like usually universities limit us to only being able to interview the top three candidates mm-hmm. it is very much a quality over quantity mm-hmm. like we're, we're only interviewing the top people I, I was actually on a committee where we tried to make an argument because of covid and we're not flying people out we wanted to interview four and they said no you can only interview three because that's the way we do it mm-hmm. and i was like okay so like open that up yeah maybe put in like you know when i was on the job market i would go into the hr files of every university and start pulling the rubrics if they had them posted and so i had the rubric in my hand while i was waiting for the zoom call to start and i was going over i was like okay how are they grading me so you can add that to but that's that on you Right, like, but if we the could, rubric we could, shifts, yeah. then y'all have to abide by it. Yeah. So yeah. that would be more system, but I don't know. Like, it's it's kind of a tough one because I I don't know necessarily like the best way because like there has to be some checks and balance when it comes to like hiring and the publication process, mm-hmm. and that's not usually where I'm I'm having trouble with rejection. I'm having trouble with rejection because. I'm not actually getting feedback. I'm just being told like, this doesn't fit the scope of our, our journal. And I'm like, what do you right. mean? Like you've got six papers that kind of cover the same topic in your journal. Yeah, I cited them. <laughs> right. Why does it not fit the scope? Or when the journal wants a particular format and then the reviewer decides that that's not the appropriate format mm-hmm. and you're rejected because of that. We had a, we had a right. fight on that recently. <laughs> No, I, yeah, yeah. And And we also need to tear apart what are we calling quantity over quality, right? Like, what is quality? Are we looking at impact factor of journals you've published in? Because that, like, we get a high impact journal uh, delivered to our house two times a month. And I've seen some of the most boring, mundane, poorly thought out research I've ever seen in my life <laughs> in that publication. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I am kind of interested in, in wanting to delve deeper because part of this, this paper, and I think what we're doing kind of fits their goal is that they wanted to open up the conversation. Mm-hmm. And they do talk about their issues and they talk about experiences that they have, things like, um, so Dr. Sweeney says that, that, you know, she submitted 160 submissions, 75 were outright rejections. Mm-hmm. So like, do not send it back your sort of rejections. Mm-hmm. She submitted 10 major grant proposals. All were rejected. She, um, you know, um, that there's, there's talk with some of them about creating a shadow Vita of like every place that you've been rejected from. Ah. as like a coping strategy to deal with with some of this to kind of look um and I, and there there is one included in this paper and it, it's it's sort of a like papers rejected like nature human behavior jpsp psychological like, they're all the top journals in the field yeah. i'm like, like yeah i've been rejected from them too 
<laughs> sometimes I don't even send stuff to them. Like they're not even on my radar of like, oh, I should send it there. Cause I'm like, eh, Science. I'm not, <laughs> yeah. Like I'm not going to submit to nature cause nature has no interest in what I do. Right. Right. Like, so yeah, a lot of these are really big names. Um, and too, like, like if mine, mine would include like really weird low tier journals. Right. That I was also rejected from. Like I could put uh, a British Journal of, of Social Psychology and like the the Journal of Quantitative Research out of Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so it's yeah, it's it it is interesting. I'd I'd really like to kind of see this expanded. I mean, part of it would be interesting to kind of delve a little more into the research. Um, let me let me go over the other two so that before we. <laughs> We spend all of our time talking about this. Um, so this is uh, recommendations for imposter syndrome. So individual levels. Um, it's a myth that a professor, CEO, or doctor looks, acts, or sounds a certain way. Recognize this myth instead of internalizing those messages. Seek help from a counselor or therapist. Um, focus on past successes as evidence. I, it's actually a good one. I, I know we 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 can look at research on like, how people deal with imposter syndrome and like you remind yourself like hey i have a position like i've completed this work i obviously have done the required mm-hmm. you know the, the the steps to do it uh remember that our ideas are likely to be at least as good as anyone else's even if our imposter concerns are telling us otherwise feel the fear to do it anyway try not to let feelings of insecurity or unworthiness dictate your behavior try um Create spaces in which your identities are represented and celebrated as reminders of your belonging. That's why I have stuffed animals in my office. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Let's. That's. That was just some of them. Let's. uh, Let's. Let's talk about the cultural instruction. Go ahead. Only thought on imposter syndrome is Mm. the research just gets more and more painful every year like reading i'm like it's 2022 people the world has burnt down nobody knows what they're doing and like mediocrity and people doing jobs they don't know how to do goes all the way up the ladder and we've had a beautiful reality TV yeah just just attend of watching it like just just attend a just attend a faculty senate meeting or a board of regents meeting and you realize that like everyone acts like they they always have like we're all human and yeah. we're all the, we're all the same at the bare bones of things um i asked right. I, I asked one of our students who who attended the last faculty senate meeting how they thought and they were like it was kind of boring but that's how our meetings go it's either really boring or people get really really invested in something and i'm like yeah, nothing changes yeah like everybody googles the answer to things nobody can spell and we have to constantly remind ourselves of like how to do math, like that there is, I don't know, it's, it just gets more cringe because it's becoming more like a pop topic. Um, and like, you know, I'm glad people are talking about it, but I don't think it's uh, as deep. I think it's probably a bias, honestly. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start strong with structural and cultural because this is actually a good one. 
academic institutions should provide mental health coverage. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's absolutely. That's a good one. Um, leaders of professional associations should work to make conference agendas more inclusive, providing opportunities for talks, symposia, networking, and awards for people working outside of research institutions and in roles outside of faculty positions. Okay. To help with imposter syndrome. Oh. Okay. Yep. Institutional leaders should be mindful of visible identity representation in campus buildings and workspaces. So I think it's uh, the idea of, of pre predominantly helping with imposter syndrome amongst like marginalized or minority groups. Right, but the call is mindfulness. It's not action. Right. Okay. Uh, predominantly, predominantly white institutions in higher education can work to build a critical mass of people of color and other minoritized identity groups across campus constituencies. Okay, so I have thoughts about that. I think it's well-intended, but opening the doors of higher education is like opening Pandora's box. And that is like the best way to kill dreams <laughs> because we haven't addressed the problems within the institution. And so if we build a critical mass of people who are all gonna be oppressed by it together, like that's gonna like destroy lives. Like I had a conversation with, uh, it was a round table book launch for one of Tara Brabazon's books. And one of the panelists was like, we need to open the doors to graduate education for more people with a diversity of mental health needs. And I was like, yes, after we address the, the reason why people in graduate schools, mental health needs get worse over time. <laughs> like you wanna throw everybody like, okay. And you know, like open access is nice, but like there is a catch like, you know, do you want to go into the maze of hell <laughs> if your ticket's free? Like, so I agree in the sense that like, you know, seeing yourself through representation with faculty and fellow students and graduate students and like reduce imposter syndrome, beautiful. We still have not addressed why it's terrible to be here though. Which academic institutions should provide mental health uh, coverage is, is a really good step in that right direction. <laughs> <laughs> it is a great step, but I will also say, and I'll just be a bigger pessimist, this is the conversation we had in personality about the awful things about work, because uh, we read Marx in the sense of like estrangement from ourselves through work, and one of the students was like, well, can we help workers become okay with their situations and like become mentally well? And I was like, well, we do kind of do that. That's why we have a uh, self-help publishing industry, right? Yep. And then one of our bright students who we share classes with, who <laughs> is in Senate, hello to you, uh, was like, uh, isn't that just what counseling is? Getting you to be okay with your life circumstances? And I was like, eh, 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 eh. 
it doesn't solve the problem. And he was like, just, did we hit, did we hit yeah. a sore spot? <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, like, yeah. yes, that is bare minimum. Like yeah. that should be in the budget. Students, faculty, staff should have access to mental health care. But that's like after the problem has already occurred. I, I know I've got you on a roll, but I want to share. Oh my God. What is it? <laughs> People in positions of power can share their own struggles to normalize and validate their mentees' experiences. Absolutely not. I do not want to hear that. <laughs> I see too many people who are paid too much money to get up there and share their stories and I'm tired of it. Train reviewers to see their role as anonymous mentors rather than gatekeepers. That's oh. fine. But I think there's a healthy amount of gatekeeping, but yeah. like also mentoring is a part, you know, yes. you want to be. I think that's good. Just don't tell me like the vice president's like story of like adversity. I don't care. And then finally burnout. Know that you're not alone. Get a good night's sleep. Seek help from a therapist who comes. <laughs> now, I, I do like some of the, like, set explicit boundaries around your work. Yes. Good. But yes. But you also need the support from the structure to do that. Um, yes. I, I have found it a lot easier to be able to set some of those boundaries. But then we started this podcast and then we're back in person. And so like, I can't keep up with it every week, Thomas. No, I do. <laughs> All um, right, guys, this is our last episode. Our last Surprise. Episode. <laughs> There's another seek help from a therapist. Okay. Uh, have a physical space to recharge without being reminded of your work, like no work at home. Like, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, that sounds great. I wish that was possible. Yeah. Uh, realize that more work does not always mean more productivity. Mm-hmm. Um, minimize social comparison. I think that also would help with like uh, imposter syndrome. I think so. Yeah. Um, or limit it to others who have similar goals or positions. So yeah, you can't compare yourself yeah. to 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 the guy at the R one. <laughs> I have to compare mm-hmm. myself to other faculty at our R three, <laughs> four. Oh, oh <laughs> like an R six. We're not even on. We're not on the Carnegie list. We haven't even applied. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And R and R asterisks. Yes. Um, yeah, find a social outlet. So get, get a hobby. Um, uh, seek help of trusted others. Build a self care toolbox. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Find, find meaning in helping or mentoring others. Okay. That one's better. That one's better. Just I'll find meaning. That. Find meaning in other stuff. All right. So here's the structural and cultural um, recommendations. Preparing yourself mentally. <sighs> yeah, I'm prepared. People in positions of power should be mindful to not <sighs> set to not set potentially toxic expectations. I don't like the potentially, <sighs> and I don't like that they should be mindful. Because, yeah, like I could be mindful and still do it. <laughs> right. I think a lot of when we talk about toxic expectations and toxic behaviors in labs and in, in academia and whatnot, I don't think 99% of the people doing it are aware that what they're doing is toxic. Right. No, like mindfulness. Just behavior for them. 
<laughs> right yeah like either call for a change like that's when I hear like be mindful I think live your true authentic self as a super villain you know what I mean like know what you're doing is terrible and like live your authentic self like I, actually call for a change or I, I really uh, like this next one but I just um, wish I just wish it was not easier said than done <laughs> okay People in positions of power should remind themselves why they decided to pursue an academic career and not confuse the means with the ends so they can set expectations for mentees accordingly. So my biggest problem with this is that my problem with like the environment has nothing to do with the people who mentor me directly. Yes. Because I think they understand why they're in academia because the like, if you were to pull every faculty member on our campus, they would say, we're here for the students. Yeah. Because that's what they're there for. Like, yeah. they like research, they like other stuff, but the, the love of teaching kind of, like, permeates our university. Yes. They're not the people in power, though. <laughs> no. And we've got another mindfulness one. Yes. Oh. Um, here's a different person, but it's another people in power. Ah, the banned words from this podcast moving forward is mindfulness and the phrase people in power. Well, I'll say <laughs> people in positions of power should remind their mentees of the importance of work-life balance and model those behaviors themselves. Or you can organize a situation where people are forced to have a work-life balance if we don't have to expend any cognitive energy in order to maintain it because it's already structurally there. Wow, what about that? Yeah, this one is almost a, a, a word for word from this other one, but it's a different person's response. People in position, oh no, uh, search and promotion committee should focus on quality over quantity, which is kind of what we do when we're hiring in academia, because um, we're only hiring like one person. <laughs> yeah, and you're um, like, committing to that person possibly forever yes and grant reviewers should adjust expectations to the current limited funding climate what does that mean i have no idea tom uh, this uh, is like i i i don't like this is like diet martin luther like call to action it's like if martin luther was like please pope be kind to us poor you know christian souls and like show benevolence so, instead of like listing demands i i had a winner and then i read some of the other ones and i i think you'll you'll agree with one okay um i have no idea how you're gonna feel about the other three so provide funding packages for graduate students that provide a living wage yes great absolutely no absolutely no argument from us there Nope. Uh, redefine, quote, achievement and expand reward structures to include multiple types of academic and professional success. Okay. I'm fine with that one. Yeah. So it's not just like merit. I guess it's in part merit based, but it's, it's, it's redefining what merit is. Yes. So that and you I could think do... we have been lucky at our institution yes. to have a very broad sweeping range of what achievement looks like. And yeah, we, we have that. we have the triad, but teaching is just, if not more, appreciated than like if you if you're not getting a publication a year, 
they're happy as long as your students are good, doing well. <laughs> and even in the research aspect, yeah. like yeah, it oh, doesn't there's... matter where you publish, right. it doesn't matter how you publish, what form it's in. Yeah. Like we put this podcast on our CV. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, so like I agree with that one too. Like let's expand dissemination of research and what research looks like. And, you know. Yeah. You know, working with a student is just a yeah or, or doing some community outreach like that's all looked at really positively yes um, and that could be part of these authors problem right mm-hmm. like if you're at michigan state you're expected to run head first into a brick wall with a nature publication like every week yeah so, which i'm not expected to do so right. you know i can judge you but also you're making like twice as much as me so f you right. organized training which i'm already off on because there's so much training. Yeah, no, most of the training's BS. Yeah, organized training to emphasize support and collaboration rather than competition. Competition so, with whom? I don't know, but the problem I'm finding is is that like I can't even do collaboration because some departments are just so overworked. Yeah. And so I I go and like, "Hey, I've got this idea for this like, cro- you know, interdisciplinary collaborative project." And they're just like, no one's got the time for that. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, I guess I'll figure something else out. Mm-hmm. Um, provide program level training and professional skills such as grant writing, journal reviewing, teaching, etc. Okay, that's fine. But uh, we're still at the basement. Right. And that's it. Okay. Wow. Inspiring. I mean, I'll, I'll get, I, I do like their, their kind of conclusion. Um, and then I'll kind of like, <laughs> they do have a thing, uh, is structural change possible? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it depends on uh, how much you want to commit to it. <laughs> right. right. And it could be a lot easier or harder depending on your institution, depending on the people running your institution, depending on the fact that, you know, one of the questions that that we we've we've brought up before like academia is a long career and so it takes to get that toxic person out takes 40 years to get that person who is not willing to change things because they are comfortable where they are is 30 years well even that perspective is super individualistic too right like the fact like you can still change that structure i would argue right right then forces that person out but if that per if that person is like the president of the university they're not changing it right (laughs) and the average faculty member doesn't have control over we might have input and but and that's why they should have put faculty and grad student and staff and contingent faculty unions in that paper wow what do you know? Collective action. Yeah, I mean, so I'll say in conclusion, repeated rejection, imposter syndrome, and burnout are common experiences among academics. Yes. Yes. Uh, the goal of this commentary is to normalize these struggles and help people feel more comfortable sharing their own stories. Cool. Uh, we cool. encourage we encourage fellow academics to further destigmatize these experiences by sharing their own stories, and they kind of talk about how they want like more research, but wait, like, wait, destigmatize. It says further destigmatize these experiences by sharing their own stories and or paths to overcoming. You got to talk at SPSP and you want to say your paper is stigmatized? 
Well, they're they're saying okay. that that the talking about those things, but also like it's okay. Pu- so it, it it's also published in uh, the Association for Psychological Science (APS). Okay, yeah, no, super stigmatized, right? Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Pers- perspe- or perspectives on psychological science. Cool. So, uh, I, I mean, the thing is, is I don't think a lot of these things are are stigmatized for us talking about them. I think the broad, systematic, cultural, structural changes that need to occur, that's where the pushback comes in. Because right. those things cost money and make mm-hmm. people uncomfortable because then they have to realize, oh, I have been benefiting from these issues and this structure and this culture, and I might lose a publication a year, or I might it might be a little harder for me to get in because they're being a little more nice, or it might be harder for me to be a reviewer because I can't be as mean. Or I can't be as rude, or I can't be as gatekeepy. Or now I have to maybe not make an egregious amount of money for being in administration at a university because now I have to pay for right the mental health care access and livable wage and right uh, reasonable work about working conditions stuff like that. So. Yeah, no. It's, or, or maybe I, if I'm getting a bunch of articles already published, maybe I don't want someone to get tenure if they're not doing as much as I'm doing. Right. Yeah. Like, like there's uh, this. There's just I don't know. I don't hate the paper. Like, I obviously, if a no. writer of this paper listens to this podcast, I, I'm probably, you know, it's they probably have a sour taste in their mouth towards me. That's fine. I think they are well-intended and sweet and not as uh, I mean, impactful I, I, as they think they were when they wrote this. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see this as a good well-intentioned article and they do kind of yes. frame it in this sort of like, we want to get the conversation started. Mm-hmm. This is 20, is this published in 2020? I mean, the conversation's been around for a very long time. Yeah. Um, there are a number of really good books and they actually, I will say, they do offer a reference list of other people who have talked about this, which include, and like, again, we, we think about like how, how stigmatized this is. They're not just that into your research, rejection in academia and psychological science. There's another one um, uh, in the Chronicle. Uh, there's the, you know, some of these are like blogs. There's one in science. Uh inside higher ed uh, like these are these are things from from years on yeah. these topics so like this isn't definitely not something now i will say a lot of these though are in um like the chronicle of higher ed and stuff like that and so we're not talking about like psychological science or like a bio paper like biology is not writing about this but they're dealing with the same problems and chemistry is not writing about this but they're dealing with the same problems right um there are things with like recommendations for cultural change include things like 10 simple rules towards healthier research labs it's a lot about mentor mentee stuff which i do think is really important but when we're dealing with these kind of like broader structural systems and like changing about how like our hiring practices and how tenure like maybe not like like in part of like how tenure and promotion is weighed a lot of that is is in part tied to like the faculty and their mentors and their mentors and their mentors. Right. But it's also an institutional thing. And it's also like an academic thing more broadly speaking. Right. 
that goes beyond just like even at an R1, like the assistant professor mm-hmm. <laughs> at an R1 who doesn't have a lot of structural power. Right. And the mentor mentee thing, I want to touch on, and this maybe we might have an extended conversation about this when I get this paper together and published. But I actually center the apprenticeship model within higher ed as the scapegoat for administration to push off responsibility for the people within the system. And that's a good transition to your paper. Yes. Yeah, so that so my claim essentially is that higher ed's fucked up. You know, we've got problems and we center mentor mentee apprenticeship stuff within graduate education as like the battleground for uh all of the problems and we just kind of throw it's kind of like a folk devil we throw all the problems into that two people relationship without looking at that full system around those two people and then realizing that there's shared responsibility across departments and colleges and administrators and universities I can, I can look at my, my PhD mentor and I can look at my master's mentor and I can look at my current faculty mentor as all being really positive influences on a lot of things mm-hmm. in my life. But the problems that are going on have nothing to do with how they treat me and how they kind of teach me to be an effect, you know, help me to become a more effective person. That was already there. Mm-hmm. The structural problems that are going on have like, would still be there even if they were a toxic mentor they're not and they're still there like we're still dealing with these same issues and we're still dealing with these same problems and they were dealing with these same problems 25 years ago when they started the university <laughs> that these like long-standing structural cultural issues yeah so like i don't know i feel like we throw a lot of our problems into those individual relationships in the university like somebody wasn't culturally aware enough or somebody wasn't, you know, supportive enough, or this wasn't, you know, I wasn't given feedback in time for this, or this student wasn't prepared enough, or this faculty member only cares about research and not teaching. And those relationships don't exist in a bubble. Yeah. And, and I think, I think you said it best, like there's, there's some bias and I'm looking through our list of biases as we're talking, there's some bias that's tied to this because it, it's this idea of to look at the individual instead of the system. Mm-hmm. It's because it's easy to, yeah. to look at that individual and say, this person's the problem, we need to get rid of them, as opposed to saying like, well, it's actually like this group and this group has been building off of the group before them and the group before them. Like it, it, it is this broader system of things that have been allowed at let's say this university and or, or within this been encouraged yeah. and rewarded and you know and so i don't know that's why i get i'm just i don't know it's 2022 and i'm tired of people's hot takes on how to solve social issues without actually committing to it <laughs> i mean it was it was easy to do 40 years ago when no one could pay attention to it um, or we didn't have the information about like, the underlying problems with these social systems at our hands. But now we do. Or and they so, were visible and we could directly engage with them. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know. It's, uh, 
that was part of the problem with the whole COVID moving online is that we became more isolated than we already were, right? Mm -hmm. So, and then work came into our homes. And so like, screw your work-life balance. Right, right. So, you know, I don't know. It's unreasonable. It's weak sauce. And congrats, guys. You got it on your CV for uh, promotion. Look at you participating in the same system with some weak sauce reforms. And then you got rewarded. Huzzah. Winners all around. <laughs> so I guess is the question. Do do we want to like maybe pick up this conversation with a part two? Because we're like stream of consciousness rambling about this. Right. Yeah. Maybe we should. I mean, I don't have a lot to say about this qualitative study beyond just like it's not tenure is not the uh, mecca that people make it out to be, which I think we already know. Um, basically, yeah. The, yeah. Basically, the argument is is that they interviewed, they did some focus groups with, I believe let's see, 16 tenured professors at mid-sized public universities. And they were like, hey, tell me about tenure. Like, what are the differences and the similarities in your experiences from like assistant to associate professor? And it's about what you would expect. Um, they talk a lot about um, there is some freedom that does come with tenure, right? So like things start to clear up there's a lot less pressure put on you um, in terms of like our previous authors discussing like, you know, rejection and uh, imposter syndrome and burnout. Like these things start to go away because you're not like constantly under this like pressure um, to publish or perish. You're not starting classes from scratch anymore yeah yeah um you have solid lines of research developed and so like an introduction from this paper that you just published can get respun into a lit review in this other journal and you've got like phd and master's students below you and you formed your lab and so now you, there's a lot more freedom to move and express yourself creatively and um, they talk a lot about do, getting more experimental in their teaching too. So they spend more time like integrating new technologies in classrooms and pretty much they get that like works self-actualizing satisfaction of being a professor after tenure. Um, there's a lot of uh, work-life balance as a joke or... <laughs> Like that doesn't happen after tenure. Like this one guy says, uh, let's see. One professor noted, quote, uh, I would say that if my 11 year old wasn't acting out, I would be incredibly satisfied with my work-life balance. Others know typical sandwich generation issues such as my mother is 89 years old and I have to get her into assisted living this summer. My kids are doing great, but I have to think about where they are moving and help them. And the moving parts in the middle stage are stressors that are beyond my job. And so, like, just because you can't get fired now, unless you do something egregious, shoot, even if you do something egregious, you might not get fired. Yeah. Um, the life is still chaotic and, you know, right. 
you're going to still be spending the same amount of time at work. You're just doing it more creatively and more purpose driven than like, oh God, I have to pass tenure. So mm -hmm. the stress is there. It's just more of a you stress at that point. So a lot of that, a lot of uh, moving into guidance, protector, um, advocate roles for younger faculty and PhD students. Mm -hmm. um, so whereas you didn't have like this social responsibility within the group to like speak out and make waves, now people look to you to do that. So now there's an expectation for you to stand up for uh, people with less power than uh, you do, assistant professors, grad students, etc. Um, and then there's like a richening of uh, relationships with other faculty members that happens after tenure too. Like you actually start developing like deeper relationships with colleagues, which I thought was very interesting. And I wonder if that has anything to do with kind of the precarity of pre-tenure, right? It might also depend on the university. I think that's a huge thing with both of the, both of these articles is, is that there are these striking differences in a lot of the stuff that they mention between universities that if you find yourself at, let's say in our case, at a regional comprehensive, mm -hmm. some of the stuff, I mean, like we deal with rejection, but also I think there's a huge, I don't know. I feel that there's a bigger hit for me than if I get rejected from like minor low tier journal on a topic than like SP, you know, JSP or JPSP. Right. Like I, I feel that I'm going to get rejected from them because they're so high tier um, right. that, it, that, but also like there's less of maybe a, there's an expectation that like I'm showing that I am working towards this, these projects and I got students working on these projects and we're trying to get something published. And as long as we're, you know, kind of moving down the line with that, we'll find a journal for it, especially if it's a weird topic because mm -hmm. we're doing weird stuff. And the fact that we are doing weird stuff that is kind of, you know, might have more stigma in the field than the discussion of burnout. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, like, you want to know stigma, try talking about bronies at SPSB. <laughs> and I've, I've done it. Um, I've gotten to, to throw that out there at a pre-conference. And like, again, like, I, I'm not going to say it's that stigmatized because it is something that's kind of fascinating and people are interested in it. And, mm -hmm. and I think we relate to, let's say, our fan communities in that regard. So I would never call it like a stigmatized vein of research. Mm -hmm. um, do I sometimes run into walls when I'm trying to get it published in some places because they look at it and go, oh, what is this? This is weird. No, we want something mm -hmm. simple. We want something easy. We want something that we understand. Um, but yeah, like like where you're where you're at can have a huge difference. And I, and I think a lot of this perspective especially because and it's not saying that we don't deal with rejection we don't deal with burnout we don't deal with imposter syndrome at like a low tier university mm -hmm. um or you know a non r1 but the culture is very different mm -hmm. that there are a lot of issues and there are a lot of the same structural and systematic you know um, issues structural and cultural issues but also it's not also compounded at the like the severity of the pressure to publish the severity mm -hmm. of that like interfaculty competition because it is cutthroat. You are literally trying to survive against the person next to you because if you don't publish, they will and they'll get tenure and you won't. 
mm-hmm. at a university where maybe tenure is is a part of that process as long as you're doing those basic expectations, but not sort of as a like like Harvard, where the vast majority of people aren't going to get tenure. Mm-hmm. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> no, they rarely ever get give tenure. They right. bring people in and give them tenure when they get there. Right. Right. Or they bring people in, they give them their five years, and then they leave because they're not going to get tenure at Harvard, even though they're one of the biggest names in the field. Mm-hmm. And that gets on to the, you know, like the people above us are having a hard time, but then there's people below us who are like the adjunct at like four different mm-hmm. community colleges, right? Right. Like they did the exact same training we did. Right. They probably had a great advisor. Yep. They have awesome CVs yep. and they're adjuncting across four different community colleges. Yeah. Yeah. And that is brutal. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with the mentor mentee relationship. It has nothing to do with the, the, the basic underlying process of let's say like tenure. It, it has mm-hmm. everything to do with a lot of other factors, hiring, yep. funding, Mm-hmm. the fact that it is just so much easier to have an army of adjuncts it's cheaper yeah than it is cheaper to have a 10 you know tenure track professor who might be around for the next 40 years mm-hmm. it's just gonna be a pain in your ass if you right. hired a good one right. <laughs> right so you know like it's it's all sorts of messed up i was in that uh conversation with tara brabazon for the book launch she was like, this is the darkest era of higher ed. Like, she's like, we are in the apocalypse with higher ed right now. And like, there was a lot of conversations about how to, working towards and how to democratize international higher ed. And that like, there we're at the ground level, like it's can get worse, but it's pretty, pretty bad right now. It's worse than she's ever seen because she's been in the system for decades. Mm. Um, and she even, so the book launches for this book called, uh, what is it, Comma, How to Reclaim, Restart, and Reboot Your PhD. And it's very uh, self-help oriented. But the whole time she was like, this is a salve. Like, I wrote this as like, this is your emergency, like smash the glass, you have to survive the next two years book. Yeah, um, yeah. It, this is not a solution book. And so like, there are conversations happening about making it better, but like, I think it's important to realize that we're like, we have let go of higher ed and let it tumble into disaster over the last like 20 years. Well, I will say this, if we do not get our guests lined up because I'm having trouble with that for next week, <laughs> um, maybe that's what we need to come back and talk about, those solutions. Or solutions. I mean, or at least mull over them because yes. I don't think there are easy solutions. And I think that's mm-hmm. part of the problem why we're not because it's really easy to to put that salve out there. Mm-hmm. And I'll I'll give Tara Brevazon huge credit is at least admitting that it's a salve because no one else admits that it's a salve. Right. Yeah. Like even our autoethnography here is like, we're gonna make a difference. And I'm right. like, mm, this is a salve. Yeah. This is a nice little band-aid you got here. Right. So we might have to come back and, and, and talk about this a little more in depth because I think it's it's definitely something that that expands upon. Like if we're talking about burnout, if we're talking about these underlying problems, 
what are the solutions or at least what are some of the proposed solutions that people have, have offered that, that offer more than just like, we need better mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I'll agree. There are plenty of people who can be better mentors. <laughs> right. But also that's part of like, but that that would change if there were structural and cultural systems that were changing they would yes. be forced to be better mentors i don't want to give people the option to do right. better and take personal responsibility like if you leave it up to like you know like rational actors to well, I, uh, if you want- make good decisions then you've already failed yeah, I mean, if you expect for every reviewer to to be a a, a, a human being interacting with other you're human beings, you're a fool. <laughs> I mean, we want that, and honestly, yeah. we shouldn't give them the option no. to be jerks. No, like, we shouldn't have to complain about like the snide aspects of a reviewer too. An editor should tamp down on that. But if that's mm-hmm. just normal behavior for their reviewers, the editor is mm-hmm. not going to view it as toxic. And so that idea, like we, we, we think people should be mindful of that toxic behavior. We as psychologists should know better. Not everyone is aware of the toxic behavior. Right. And just because you're thinking about it doesn't mean it's going to translate into behavior. So like that is, yeah, no, I expect more. Give me more. <laughs> So I, I found at least maybe one that's a little close, but it's not quite. I'm going to go do a much deeper dive into our biases for maybe next week's bias of the week. Cool. But for this bias of the week, I think I found one that's a little close and it's one that we haven't done, but it's one of the more popular ones. Okay. Jo- Jones and Nesbitt, 1972, actor observer bias. Oh, okay. <laughs> the fundamental attribution error. Yeah. Uh, the tendency to judge one's own actions as being caused by situational factors and observing others' behaviors as being caused by dispositional factors. And I think mm-hmm. that that definitely, from the outsider looking in, saying, oh, it's the mentor. It's the individual. It's not... It's reviewer too. It's, it's your bad boss. Right. It's not the culture that created that mentor. It's not the culture that created that reviewer. It's not the reinforced behavior right. that led to that. It's, it's, it's the underprepared student. Right. Right. I think that uh, this bias perfectly encapsulates your article this week. <laughs> yeah, but it's the person, except for me. Right. So from the individual standpoint, it changes. That's when we start to see defensive attributions, where for me, when it's something bad that happens, it's the environment. When it's something good that happens, it's me. Right. No, exactly. When I, so when I get rejected that's... from from JPSP, it's, it's a system, system it's problem. System. <laughs> I'll, I'll be. I'll, I'll completely admit when I get rejected from JPSP, it is the article that I wrote. It is me. It is all me. Yeah, no. no. I put an article out there. I'm like, oh, this is a hot piece of garbage. We'll see who picks it up. <laughs> Though I will say, I have read some stuff, and we we have talked about some stuff in JPSP and, and the bulletin recently, and uh, mm-hmm. maybe it isn't just me. No, it's <laughs> yeah, no, and it kind of goes along with like our conversation with uh, uh, Dr. Green yeah. about uh, the theme of the conf- the unspoken theme of the conference. Like, 
if you don't ride with the tide, like you get left behind, and that yeah. an obscure Romanian open access journal that you have to like double translate your abstract, and nobody's gonna read it. So, you know, there is a system real. problem. Like, I, their diagnosis is apt. Their solution is wanting. So. I guess with so, that, we'll either pick up with more discussion on this next week, and we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do a proper twist episode if it comes down to it, because like I, I think I should have had a drink. Right? No, we should do episode. a proper twist episode for solutions, and like just go all out. Because I have some like off the wall ideas that would require revolution. And I, I would um, I would love to talk a little bit about the slow professor and some other books that have been written on this topic because I think we brought it up that like professors have more administrative duty than ever and, yeah. admi- and administration is bigger than ever. What is going mm-hmm. on there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so cool. let's plan right for the the we get tan- canceled by the tenure committee um, in the yeah. next episode because let's destroy our chances of tenure next week. If we hadn't already. (laughs) Well, until then, goodbye. Bye.